Welcome to the Journal.ie's The Explainer, where every week we take a deep dive into a different news story. I'm Michelle Hennessy, and this week, what's driving Ireland's rising cost of living? Energy prices are soaring, rents are continuing to rise, and some families are having to choose between heating their homes and putting a meal on the table. Everything is more expensive than it was last year, and the pressure on government to do something about it has now come to a head. This week, Cabinet announced a range of measures aimed at easing that burden on households. But there's no quick fix here, and a wrong step could make things even worse. So what is driving the country's inflation rate, and what could actually improve the situation for families in Ireland who are struggling? Here to talk us through it is Tricia Keelty, Head of Social Justice and Policy with St Vincent de Paul, and the Journal's business reporter, Ian Curran. Ian, I'll start with you. You wrote an explainer for the site recently about why everything is more expensive. So how long have prices been rising, and why are we here now? Hi Michelle, thanks for having me back. Well, I suppose prices have been kind of steadily rising over the past 12 months. We had a situation where I suppose that the consumer price index for December showed a 5.7% annual increase in consumer prices in the 12 months previous. Now that's the largest annual change in prices since 2001. Um, in the Eurozone, the story is much the same across you know the, the, the economies that make up the single currency area. Eurozone inflation at 5.1% in January. It's now expected to remain sort of above the ECB's 2% target for longer than expected, but then eventually to fall down uh, back below 2% probably in 2023. So I think if you look at the last 12 months or even the kind of period of the pandemic, it would probably tell you one story about inflation. But I think you kind of have to look at the kind of context and a, and a bit of history for sort of Eurozone and Irish inflation. I mean, on the eve of the pandemic, Eurozone inflation was running at about 1.3% annually. That was kind of in January 2020. In, in Ireland, it was about 1.1%. Uh, and then obviously we had the, you know, the shock of the pandemic and prices fell even further in 2020 uh, before rebounding in 2021. So a lot of this kind of big, you know, the big shift that we've seen in prices and, you know, that's been captured in kind of headline inflation figures. A lot of that is about kind of what the economists call base effects, where obviously after you have a very large drop off and then you have an increase, the increase looks a lot bigger than it, 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 it is. Now, that said, prices have been increasing in particular areas of the economy at a, a you might call an alarming rate. Uh, and that's, you know, down to a number of factors. But that's the kind of context for it. And I think, you know, pre-pandemic, the ECB would have given its right arm to be able to get, you know, Eurozone inflation of 2%. It persistently undershot that target. And now we have inflation of, you know, close to 5% and expected to remain, you know, elevated above the 2% target for longer than expected. And, you know, if we go back to the basics on this, can you explain how inflation actually works and also how this increases the cost of living. Sure. I mean, inflation really just describes a situation where, uh, you know, the average price of a basket of consumer goods increases over a particular time frame, say over a month or over a year. And what that does is as prices increase, obviously, the purchasing power of, of a given currency declines. In other words, five euro buys you less, you know, after 5% inflation than it did before 5% inflation. So that's it, really. And obviously, that affects people disproportionately on the kind of lower end of the, the, the income distribution. It also affects people who are on fixed incomes, because i Obviously, if those fixed incomes aren't increased in line with inflation, it means that the price of goods is outstripping uh, the, the rate of increase in their income. So obviously, you know, it has these distributional effects, particularly on sort of the lower end of the uh, of the income distribution. And where do interest rates come into all of this? Well, interest rates really are just kind of a policy tool. Um, effectively, uh, interest rates are obviously you know described the, the you know the cost of borrowing, and it it is a bit complicated. But essentially, the European Central Bank sets what are called policy rates. And these rates are kind of 
you know, determine how much it costs for private banks like AIB, Bank of Ireland, whatever, within the euro system to kind of borrow from the ECB sort of overnight. And these things that kind of keep the, you know, the financial system going, right? So the ECB sets policy rates and, you know, over time, you know, since the crash, the the ECB has aimed to keep policy rates as low as possible. And, And what that does is that feeds then into kind of the, you know, the rates that, uh, bank set for you know deposits and, and and the kind of rates that we pay on mortgages and all of that and so by keeping interest their policy rates low and hoping that private banks keep their interest rates low you know the ECB hopes to kind of stimulate uh, the, you know economic activity by making borrowing cheaper obviously more borrowing you know can lead to more spending which means more investment and, and hopefully more jobs so the ECB has tried to keep interest rates you know at rock bottom near record lows sometimes in negative figures uh, o- o- over the this, uh, you know, 10 year period. Uh, and it aims to do that, you know, it, to continue to do that. But raising interest rates is kind of what you might describe as, I suppose, one of the orthodox approaches to a situation where you have rampant inflation. Uh, and that's very much a discussion that central banks all over the world are having right now. I mean, the Bank of England has already raised rates twice in the last three months. The U- US Federal Reserve, which is the, you know, the American central bank, is discussing, you know, f- at least five interest rate hikes this year. Uh, and the ECB, which sets interest rates or policy rates in the eurozone, uh, is now having to sort of discuss the idea of raising rates this year. Although they're still insisting that they won't raise rates this year, but uh, they've kind of had to concede that it might be possible if if inflation continues at this kind of rampant pace. And we've been hearing as well a lot of discussion about the price of oil and gas. So how does that tie in here? How does that affect our energy costs? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I think this is really what we, the, the nub of the issue in the eurozone and in um, and in Ireland in particular. I said that raising interest rates is a way, uh, you know, kind of the orthodox approach to a situation where you have rampant inflation. That you know, a central bank would start to increase the interest rate, making it more expensive to borrow, potentially reducing aggregate demand within the economy. But that you know, th- that's appropriate in a situation where you know, aggregate demand is running absolutely rampant, you know, and consumers have too much money and they're spreading, you know, spending uh, to beat the band and that sort of thing. But really, that's not what's happening in the Eurozone, or that's not what the ECB says is happening in the Eurozone. Really, what the ECB says is happening in Ireland and the Eurozone is is we have these kind of pandemic-related supply constraints and specific issues within energy markets that are driving up prices. And the evidence for this is that energy prices have uh, spiked, skyrocketed over the past uh, 12 months. Europe is in the grip of a genuine energy crisis, uh, a situation where it doesn't have enough natural gas. And, and that's for a number of reasons. I think the last time we were, I was on, we were talking about that. But um, so, yeah, I, I, and all of this basically has made it more expensive for utilities companies to generate electricity by, uh, you know, using natural gas. And basically what that means is that they've passed on the costs that they've incurred onto the consumer. That's why you're seeing higher energy bills, higher home heating bills. And obviously then as well, the price of petrol and the price of diesel have, uh, you know, increased massively over the past 12 months as economies have reopened and as demand has recovered for crude oil and so on after the shock of 2020. But so so that's what we're seeing. And really, that's what's driving inflation in Ireland and across the Eurozone. I mean, I think like if you look at the last Irish consumer price index, you had a situation where higher transport prices made the biggest contribution to inflation to that 5.7% figure over the course of the last 12 months. And that was mostly because of, you know, petrol and diesel prices have skyrocketed and also because airfares have recovered 
you know, p- people are actually flying more, spending more on, on, on travel. And then the second largest contribution to Irish inflation was the category of kind of housing, water, electricity and other fuels. A situation where you had electricity shot up by 22.4% in those 12 months and gas was up 27%, natural gas. So that's really what's driving inflation. And it's because of that that a, a lot of economists believe uh, that that the current bout of inflation is temporary. That it, you know some of these uh, constraints, some of these issues will start to fall away this year, particularly as the winter dies down, as people need less heating in, in their homes, and and demand reduces for that for that sort of thing. But then also because these are kind of situational post pandemic supply constraints as well, which are pushing up the cost of transport and shipping. So th- there is some hope there. Uh, I think uh, that the you know the, these. Uh, kinks, I suppose, in, in the supply chain, these kinks in the ener- in energy markets uh, will start to even out and then we'll start to see inflation come down a bit towards the end of this year. I mean, you were mentioning there, Irene, that you know, some of this is, is down to supply chains, is pandemic related. How much of this is due to the pandemic? And I'm wondering as well, because this isn't something that just happened overnight, is it something that world leaders saw coming? How expected was it? Well, I, th- I think it was probably expected with, you know, in, in the context of the pandemic, in the sense that you had a situation where governments had to pour large amounts of money into their economies to prop up businesses. We did that here through the form of like, the, you know, the employment wage subsidy scheme. We did it here through the, the pandemic unemployment payment. And effectively what that did was prop up, you know, household incomes and, and business incomes that meant that consumers still had money to spend uh, on things. Um, and, and But the problem was that for large parts of obviously 2020 and 2021, they, they didn't have anywhere to go with that money. Uh, and so when the economy started to reopen, when things, you know, um, when restrictions were unwound, we had this kind of sugar rush of activity. And we had a situation where you had the kind of classic demand polar inflation where, you know, you had too much money chasing too few goods. So people were sort of always expecting that sort of to happen to some extent, that doesn't mean that those interventions weren't absolutely necessary. It doesn't mean that they weren't massively uh, uh, important for kind of keeping the economy on, on an even keel through an incredibly traumatic time. But, but it, you know, I think there was a sense that th- this kind of level of intervention could absolutely, uh, you know, increase inflation over time. So, yeah, I mean, to what extent was it expected? It was expected in the context of the pandemic. Pre-pandemic, as I said before, I mean, the ECB would have given its right arm for 2% inflation across the eurozone. It could never meet that target. And that was despite the fact that it was still printing and pumping money into the eurozone financial system long after the crash, long after the recession. And I think one of the reasons for that is because of Europe's response to the last recession, they they approached it in a sort of, you know, they adopted a kind of deflationary approach, as we're well aware of in Ireland, where they were sort of trying to keep government spending down and, and, and actually quoted in a lot of places. And that has kind of led to sort of scarring effects over the course of, of that kind of decade. So pre-pandemic, I mean, nobody would have guessed that we would have had inflation of 5.1% across the Eurozone in, in 2022. Absolutely nobody was forecasting that. So yeah, I mean, it's absolutely, it's you know, it seems to be all about the pandemic, certainly situationally. And I mean, this obviously isn't something that's just restricted to Ireland. So, I mean, what do we know about the situation in in Europe and other countries? Are are they having the same experience that we're having? 
Yeah, I mean, in some ways, the, the Irish situation is similar and in other ways, it's different. Broadly speaking, the main drivers of inflation at the moment are exactly the same. It's the the skyrocketing price of home uh, heating and electricity uh, and, and other energy products. That's really what's driving it. But but Ireland is different in some ways. And, and, and there are kind of longer term drivers of inflation and longer term drivers of, um, you know, the, like of cost of living issues that here that are kind of unique. And one of them is the housing crisis, obviously, uh, where we have a situation where rents are continuing to skyrocket in Ireland and housing costs are going up. So that that's a unique thing to Ireland. And, and, and to some extent, you know, I mean, I mean, property markets are red hot everywhere, but Ireland has a, a very acute issue there, obviously, with regard to rents, uh, which are kind of adding to the you know general cost of living issues. But by and large, the, the kind of European experience or the Eurozone experience maps fairly well onto what's happening in Ireland, albeit, you know, slightly different in certain areas. Um, so, yeah, it, it's kind of, it, you know, we're all sort of going through the same uh, kind of crisis at the moment. Trisha, if I can bring you in here, I might start by asking what it is that you're seeing at St. Vincent de Paul now in terms of the impact of the rising cost of living. I suppose we're seeing it on multiple fronts, but particularly in the areas of energy, housing and transport. And I suppose the cost of living crisis has been affecting low income households for many years now, particularly people on fixed incomes, people in low paid work um, and the decisions and the difficult decisions that people have to make every day and every week in terms of the which essentials they will cut back on to make ends meet is nothing new uh, to people on low incomes. But we know now that inflation, in particular, when the cost of essentials are rising so quickly like they are at the moment, that has a really big impact on people on low incomes. And I suppose what we're seeing now is people having to cut back even more um, that maybe not turning on the heating at all at any point in the day or only turning it on for maybe 30 minutes in the evening, going to bed early so you can get under the covers and and get some warmth into you. People on prepay meters, I think they're seeing it particularly clearly where last year they would have got maybe six days from their 30 euro top up where now they're only getting three three or four days or even two days um, in terms of usage. So you literally have people who are maybe sitting in the cold in the dark um, when they reach out to SVP for help. Um, and that's a very stark situation, I think, um, for people to hear about, given uh, the level of difficulties people are facing. And I suppose it is affecting everybody, but it's really affecting people on the lowest incomes most, I think. Yeah, as you say, it sounds like a, a stark situation. And I'm wondering, as you pointed out, this isn't a problem that's exactly new. Uh, we've always had people who struggle to pay their bills, struggle to pay for heating, particularly in winter. But it is worse now. So at what point did you first spot the signs that things were getting worse? And was there a point at which, you know, you just said something's changing here? Well, I suppose we are experienced during the, during the pandemic. We would have noticed that many households were really struggling with gas and utility usage at that point because schools were closed particularly for families they were really noticing that they were spending more on gas and electricity um, and that was due to greater usage and then on top of that now you have the price increases so really towards the end of summer this year people would have had bill shocks and then they would have been faced with price increases at the same time so you have two issues happening at the moment which are uh, separate but closely related so we have many people with significant amount of utility debt getting in touch and then also people who are struggling to pay their weekly bills or, or monthly bills as a result 
to the price rises as well. So we've been engaging, you know, with suppliers and um, also the regulator and also government to ensure that supports are there for people when they need them. And I think as this crisis uh, continues and we expect inflation to be at very high levels until at least the end of this year, it's really important that the supports that are provided are directed at people on the lowest incomes and they're very targeted in, in, in their nature as well. And are you seeing people coming to you who haven't previously needed to seek this kind of help? So absolutely, you know, um, people are, are reaching out to us that that haven't has, had to ask for SVP's help before. And it's not easy for people to pick up the phone. Um, we are here. We are uh, there to help people. And that's that's what our volunteers want to do. And, and that's what they are doing on a, on a weekly basis across the country. And I think for, for people who maybe didn't struggle with their bills before are now getting in touch. People who have been left maybe on uh, lower incomes as a result of the pandemic. I suppose we published research last year in March of 2021, which was um, carried out by Red Sea. And it showed that the groups who were most vulnerable to financial insecurity prior to the pandemic were hit hardest with that. So people on the one hand were able to build up savings and they tended to be better off households. But for people who were worse off and in lower income work or on fixed incomes, they ended up having to use their savings or go into debt already. So now you have a situation where households are very exposed and they'd have no savings to deal with the spike in prices. So the reality is now that people are having to make very, very difficult choices. And these may be people who are able to cope um, maybe 18 months ago, but are now really, really feeling the pinch. Yeah. And can you tell us a bit more about the kind of assistance you're providing to people when they do get in touch? So I suppose there's a range of different supports that we can provide. I suppose we have um, the main activity is home visitation. So during the pandemic, obviously, we couldn't do that. So we were providing support over the phone and then maybe posting out uh, financial assistance to people um, or doing uh, drop offs of maybe food parcels or other items that people required. Um, so I suppose if people ring up, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll understand exactly what their needs are. We listen, uh, provide some support. We may refer people to other organisations that can maybe help and um, that may be the money advice and budgeting service and um, we work very closely with. We may also refer people to the community welfare service which is operated by the Department of Social Protection who may also be in a position to help people. Um, we can provide direct financial support and we can also um, just give people uh, advocate on their behalf maybe to suppliers or, or creditors that they're in debt to as well. Um, I suppose the first thing we say if someone does uh, approach SVP who has utility debt for example is that they get in touch with their supplier because it's important for people to remember that if you are engaging with your supplier you won't be disconnected um, and it's really important that people get in touch because there is options there in terms of payment plans maybe some debt relief is is, on, is available to people as well in certain circumstances so I think it's really important that suppliers are flexible during this time and that they're offering options for people so that no one is disconnected because it's uh, really a dreadful thing for, for someone to be shut off from their gas and electricity. Ian, I'll bring you back in here. We were hearing there from Trish about the, the real tangible impact that this is all having on the ground uh, for, for you know people who are already quite vulnerable. And this week, the government announced plans to address the issue. Can you tell us about those plans? And I'm wondering as well, are they likely to help the kinds of people that Trisha at St. Vincent de Paul is working with in the short term? 
Yeah, well, I think to answer the second question first, it's probably too early to say right now. We'll have to kind of wait and see what the impact of it is. But by and large, what the government, uh, you know, the approach has been is to kind of adopt one-off sort of short-term measures um, you know, and I suppose part of that is out of necessity. I mean, there is a very real chance that when it comes to the energy issue, uh, that some of these pressures, these price pressures start to actually decrease over the next maybe eight to 12 weeks. So kind of longer term solutions and kind of coming up with stuff right now to, you know, to try to suit six weeks or eight weeks or 12 weeks down the line might not work. But what the government has done has are these you know, ad- adopted these measures that they that they have stressed are sort of one off uh, and kind of supposed to be you know on a short term basis. So the first thing, obviously, is the doubling of the energy credit that was announced before Christmas. That's gone from a hundred euro to two hundred euro in the form of it, it could be kind of a one off payment next month. Um, after people, I, I think around the time people get their bills. The other big ticket item, I suppose, was an increase in the fuel allowance in the form of a uh, a one off additional lump sum of one hundred and twenty five euro that will also be paid out next month and then there was other sort of things like i suppose there was a reduction a 20 percent reduction in tra- public transport fares from april to the end of the year and um, that applies to you know dart dublin bus uh Aaron Road Aaron and so on and, and also then finally uh, i mean the, 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 one of the things i was interested in i wrote about a bit this week and um, the government has brought forward an increase in the income bans for the working families payment which is a, a an in-work benefit aimed at people on the kind of lower end of the middle part of the income distribution who are actually in work and and, and are uh, also have dependent children um so basically the government was going to increase the income bans uh they announced that in budget 2022 by 10 euro from June and they decided to bring that forward from June to April. So so that's kind of the, the gist of what was announced yesterday. And um, there was also enhancement of the drug payment scheme, which will mean that qualifying families pay a maximum of 80 euro per week, per month, instead of 100 euro uh, for prescribed drugs and medicine. So those are the main kind of items that the government adopted. And is there a risk that the government actions could actually make things worse? How much of a balancing act is all of this? Yeah, well, I think that's an interesting question as well. I mean, I spoke to Kieran McQuinn, uh, Professor Kieran McQuinn from the SRI last week, and and, and he was saying that you know th- this is a funny situation where you know normally economists would be telling uh, governments to 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 take a step back at a, you know at a time of high inflation, you know, to, to to rein in spending or whatever. But at the moment, you know. Ireland has these kind of longer term issues which require actually more government investment, issues that are causing, you know, sorry, that are inflating, I suppose, the cost of living over time, including the housing crisis, the childcare uh, crisis as well. I mean, uh, so the advice very much is that I think from economists is that the government should steer the course on, on, on spending in areas that may reduce the cost of living over time, particularly in housing and childcare. And in the short term, you know, try, try not to uh, stoke inflation by, uh, you know, giving sort of giveaway budgets or ad- adopting kind of populist measures. But I think by and large, I, I think the, 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 the things announced yesterday, the, the you know, the, the, the measures announced are mostly targeted at people who are, you know, in those sort of vulnerable categories. And I think that's very much what economists, a lot of economists wanted to see, um, although there may be some nitpicking over the coming days. But I think largely what they, you know, they are targeted at, at the most vulnerable. And there were a good few potential measures that were floated over, over the last week that, you know, were were on the table as possibilities for, for measures to be taken. Smaller individual things like reducing emergency department fees or reducing the fees for passport renewal and things like that. What are the experts saying about those types of smaller individual measures? Do they actually make an impact? Well, again, I mean, it, you know, 
it's difficult to say what sort of an impact they would have overall. I mean, from, from where we're standing right now, I think, you know, those sort of items and, and even some of the items really that the government announced this week are unlikely to take a massive chunk out of, uh, you know, headline inflation figures or anything like that. They may make, you know, um, uh, sort of day-to-day life a little bit cheaper. But but in terms of this kind of, you know, the, 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 this large spike that we've seen in, in the consumer price index over the past 12 months, uh, probably, you know, reducing emergency department fees, whatever, you know, that, that that's not going to take a big chunk out of that. But I mean, this is a question. I mean, it is a question about how we actually gather data on price inflation, on, on the cost of living. And I think there is a discussion, uh, you know, at the moment that's, you know, around the fact that the, the, the consumer price index perhaps doesn't, uh, you know, accurately reflect uh, the, the kind of cost of living issues that people, particularly on the kind of lower end of the income distribution, tend to experience. So uh, I think we probably need more data around those th- those sort of things. But again, I think probably unlikely to take a big chunk out of headline inflation. But yeah, I mean, there, there may be an argument for it if we have sort of better data about about the kinds of things and, and, and that, that, that households are spending their money on. That's something that the uh, Central Statistics Office is working on at the moment. They are actually conducting their first household budget survey since 2015. And that will kind of, when it's completed in 2023, that will mean that the sort of what what I described as, you know, the basket, the average basket of consumer goods that the consumer price index is based on uh, will actually be updated to reflect you know, where we are now and what households are really spending their money on. Well, I mean, we are, uh, the CSO is in the process of collecting that uh, uh, that data. That should give us a better reflection of, of where households are today compared to where they were in sort of 2015, 2016. And as we look ahead now, is there a risk of hyperinflation? I might get you to start by explaining what hyperinflation is first. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I think highly unlikely is probably what, uh, you know, um, is the answer to that. Hyperinflation is just a situation where you have incredibly like rampant inflation. Obviously, there's a few historical examples of it in you know, Weimar, Germany, in Hungary and, and other places. Usually that's to do with sort of policy failures where the government, you know, or the central bank is printing too much money and the economy is, uh, you know, you know, not not capable of actually meeting the demand that the printing of the money is 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 creating. Um, it seems unlikely that we'll get something like that in the Eurozone, given the fact that, as I've mentioned before earlier uh, in the podcast, the uh, you know, the, the European Central Bank has been fly, fighting the opposite of de- inflation for the best part of a decade. And, you know, there is a sense that, you know, things could very well slow down in a way that is kind of all too familiar in the Eurozone over the course of this year. And that's why the ECB is so wary and is, is kind of has made it clear that it does believe that inflation will fall back below its 2% target you know, next year, because there are sort of underlying factors in the Eurozone economy, uh, you know, particularly around labour markets, the kind of lingering after effects of the last Great Recession, uh, and so on. So I think because of all these underlying dynamics, because of these things that are sort of, you know, weighing generally on price levels in the Eurozone, and in Ireland, we're unlikely to see a situation where uh, where we get hyperinflation. Added to that, the fact that you know central banks are much more nimble and much more ready to act when they start to see uh, you know the, the, these kind of uh, signals coming from economies than they were sort of during Weimar Germany or or what are, you know these other kind of historical examples. So uh, I think we're unlikely to see hyperinflation. Are we going to see stagflation? A situation where the you know, the economy is slowing at the same t- time as prices are rising. This was a feature of the economy, you know, I- 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 in the 
1970s. Obviously, the United States was a great example of that in the kind of late 1970s, mid to late 1970s. That, that's a debate that economists are having. And I think that would be a fear would be that, you know, after this kind of pandemic sugar rush dies down and when the dust is settling, you know, in the middle part or, you know, towards the end of this year, that you have a situation where the economy itself is slowing down, but prices are still elevated um, that remains to be seen as well. But it's a debate that, that that's very much being had. And, and I think that that would probably be a greater risk than hyperinflation. Um, but it, it's too early to say, uh, you know, if we'll get either, really. Well, I was hoping that we'd be finishing on an optimistic note there, not heading towards hyperinflation. But you've kind of drowned that out now, Ian. <laughs> um, thanks so much for coming on and explaining all of that to us. It's such a complex situation for people to wrap their heads around. So it's always really helpful to have someone go through all of it with us. Thanks for coming on. And also thanks to Tricia. Thanks to everyone who listened to this episode of The Explainer. And thanks again to Tricia and to Ian for joining me today. This episode was brought to you by producers Eva Barry and Nikki Ryan. If you liked what you heard and you want to support The Explainer, there are a few things you can do. You can head to thejournal.ie forward slash contribute to become a monthly subscriber, or you can leave us a rating and a review as well if you're feeling generous, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thanks again for listening. Until next time.